Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. I'm Kathy Bird. This is Fresh Art International. We've been amplifying the voices of contemporary artists, curators, designers, and filmmakers since 2011. In 2017, I became a member of the International Association of Curators of Contemporary Art during IKT's convening in Norway. Traditionally, IKT meets in a different location each year. Locals organize a topical program and introduce their cultural landscape. In 2022, we travel from around the world to Kentucky in the United States. Our first days are packed with positive urban experiences. Museum, gallery, private collection and studio visits, a symposium, and sunset tours of two outdoor sculpture collections. A small group of us continues the adventure on a road trip that takes us to the far eastern edge of Kentucky. Musician Sarah Kate Morgan, one of the locals we meet en route, sets the mood for our journey. As we cross the state, we learn firsthand the challenges of growing up and producing culture in the region. We watch a documentary made by a local filmmaker. These are the mountains I come from in eastern Kentucky. We walk in the woods in the Valley of Winds. We visit a coal mine. Because if you look in front of you, behind you, there's nothing but coal everywhere. Okay, so saying they mined it out. Some of us learn circle dancing. En route, we pass a landscape shrouded in kudzu. A recent traveler in the region, Belgium-based curator Orlando Micah Gauenberg, shares the story of this invasive vine. They thought this is a great thing for places where there's too much erosion. But then it turned out to be an invasive species. So during the spring, it grows 30 centimeters per, per day. And the roots go 12 feet deep. You cannot destroy it. It overgrows everything. So if you go on holidays and you park your car next to your house, you, you will find it overgrown. It has inspired a lot of people to write about it. So we stop at the Southeastern Kentucky Community and Technical College in Harlan County to view a display of historic photos from the area. Caroline Rubens meets us in the school's theater to introduce us to Apple Shop, a vital homegrown media center in the small town of Whitesburg, Kentucky. Rubens is director of the archive Apple Shop it was founded in 1969 as part of a war on poverty project to train young people in disadvantaged communities in film and video production. So it was a job training program, really. The idea was to get people jobs in the film and TV industry. So there were workshops in New York, in Chicago, in California where there were jobs in the film and television industry, but in Whitesburg, Kentucky, there really were none. So people would have had to have left their home 
to get jobs. And you must be getting the sense that there's a very deep connection to this place among people who have lived here, whose parents and grandparents settled here. So these young workshop trainees learning how to make film, they're high school students. It lit a spark, learning how to tell their stories through the medium of filmmaking. So they became determined to stay and to form an independent film production company. Over the years, Apple Shop has diversified. We recently celebrated our 50th anniversary. People wanted to start a record label and document some of the mountain musicians that were otherwise unknown. A theater company started to tell the stories of this region on stage. We've now got a radio station. There's a youth media division that kind of carries the torch of putting the tools of moving image storytelling in the hands of young people. Apple Shop sits across the road from the Kentucky River. We learn about how the media center prepares for natural disasters and how the recent flooding inundated the archive. All of these things that created product on film and video and audio tape and we have photographs, they were all held in the Apple Shop archive, which was on the first floor of Apple Shop. Recently, we had started getting funds to digitize the collection so we could get them transferred, and the plan was to ultimately move everything off-site, but climate change caught up with us. So we were able, with a lot of volunteers, to move everything out of the vault. We had about 24,000 items in there. It's been a challenge, but we sent things off to preservation labs that specialize in salvage of all of the media formats we have, and we're getting good reports back. It's just we have to act fast. It's going to cost a lot and take a lot of time. Rubens introduces a pivotal film made by one of Apple Shop's founders, Elizabeth Barrett. Stranger with a Camera is a documentary about an incident that took place in 1968. It was a time when a lot of photographers and film crews were coming to the region to document the poverty. Suddenly a, a national light was shining on what was happening here. People had very conflicted feelings about how they were being represented. And really, for a century, the representation of Appalachia was something that was very difficult for people who lived here, the stereotypes. So Elizabeth wanted to tell this story through this event where a, a Canadian filmmaker came and he was shooting footage and he went onto someone's land without clearing it with the landowner who got a shotgun and shot the filmmaker, Hugh O'Connor. So Elizabeth saw this story as a launching point to explore how people viewed this event. I live every day with the implications of what happened. This is my community. My life is here. As a filmmaker, I have the responsibility to see my community for what it is, to tell the story no matter how difficult. 
Watching Stranger with a Camera leaves a deep impression. I reach out to Caroline Rubens to talk about other cultural representations coming out of Apple Shop. Who are some of the prominent musicians that worked with Apple Shop? Apple Shop made a film about Ralph Stanley. He is a legend in the bluegrass world. Nimrod Workman, who in Appalachian culture has legendary status. He was a National Heritage Fellow Award winner. He was a ballad singer and he sang a lot of labor union songs. He fought alongside Mother Jones in the West Virginia mine wars. I am a Apple Shop made a film about him, and our first June Apple recordings release, our record label, is of Nimrod Workman. In our collection, some of the best of Appalachian traditional music is represented. I was on this journey with other members of the Association of International Curators of Contemporary Art and We talked a lot about diversity when we were in the cities of Kentucky, and in a conversation about global Appalachia, we had a very diverse array of speakers. Yet, when we went east in the state, I actually didn't meet any artists of color or hear much about that community. And I did ask once, and I was told that only... 2% of the population of East Kentucky is African-American. So who represents voices of color in the work that comes out of Apple Shop? For most of its history, the artists at Apple Shop have been white residents of the region, reflecting to a degree the population here. However, Apple Shop Filmmakers and some of our June Apple producers have made efforts to document the Black history and Black residents of the region. In the past, I would say during the height of the coal mine industry here, in certain towns, there would be significant populations of Black Appalachian coal miners. So Appalachia was a stop in the Great Migration from Alabama and the Deep South over the course of the 20th century. So there is a history here. And Apple Shop has had a long relationship with Black scholars. For example, William Turner, who was a pioneer in the area of Black Appalachian studies. And I'll also note that several June Apple recordings are with artists of color, For example, Earl Gilmore, who was a gospel singer in southwestern Virginia that also falls within the Appalachian Mountain region.
Pygmy Jarrett, who was actually a Cincinnati-based artist, he played barhouse blues piano. He was wonderful. Sparky Rucker, who is a folk gospel singer, traditional Appalachian musician, who has performed at Apple Shop many, many times over the years. And one of his records is on our Gene Apple Recordings label. You better come So what can we expect to happen next with Apple Shop? So we've got a project to document Black Appalachian churches and community life in the region. Historically, the Black churches are the locus of cultural life and family life. So we've hired a young man from the Black community who is collecting data and photographing and collecting oral histories of people around central Appalachia who are members of church communities. Jessica Bennett Kincaid, Public Art Administrator for Louisville, is one of the locals who joins our road trip. One evening, she takes a walk with me around downtown Whitesburg, where she's been involved in recovery efforts at Apple Shop. We want to talk about the neighborhood that we're walking through right now that was underwater just six, seven weeks ago. Seven weeks ago. And it's amazing. There's a plushing fountain here, and there's cars. There are some businesses boarded up, a lot of businesses open. The fire department, bay doors are open. There's repairs being done behind the windows of these places, and just steps from where we are is Apple Shop. And we're looking across the river at the building, how far did the water come? So Apple Shop is a wood frame building. It's a wood-sided building. It has a very distinctive architectural quality about it. It's essentially three stories at its highest point, but the floodwaters were all the way up to the bottom of that second story deck. So the archive, which to their credit, Apple Shop had done a better job than some cultural institutions in Louisville, I will say, about archiving, documenting, cataloging, preserving their work. And the entire collection storage was flooded. There are tons of photos coming out of the recovery efforts, hundreds of thousands of feet of film and tape reel 
I have one picture of 16 linear feet of single stacked VHS tapes. That was the only thing that didn't get wet. And inches and inches of mud just caked on the floor in the humid heat of a Kentucky summer. Everything was wet. Mold started growing instantly. Besides the weather being heavy, the air being heavy, the psychological and emotional weight of the moment, you felt it. It was really heartbreaking to see. And in those first days, it's a little bit of just adrenaline pumping, scrambling. You have to compartmentalize that and just treat it as objects that you're loading into a truck. Several days later, I came back down here and I was standing in the black box theater with just the stage lights on, shining all this light on the film reels that had been spread across the stage, caked in mud. And the task at hand was to write the accession number and the title and whatever identifying information that we could on the plastic and metal reels because the boxes all had to be thrown away. So we were actively undoing all of this remarkable cataloging that they had spent years completing. They're ventilating the building and it's hot. I'm wearing a respirator. That was kind of the moment where I was forced to confront the material of what we were handling. Writing, interview with June Carter Cash, grand opening of Apple Shop, like all of this important cultural matter that you just have to stand there and hope it can be saved. Our second day out begins with a mining tour in Lynch, Kentucky. Our guide takes us underground for this experience. My name's Nick, and I want to welcome everybody to Portal 31. It's a pleasure having you all here today. Now, the town that you're in today, Lynch, Kentucky, believe it or not, this tiny little town was at one point in time the largest company-owned coal camp in the world. You had about 10,000 people living here in this tiny little town with about half of those, about 5,000 of them working specifically for the company, and that company was U.S. Steel. Now, in 1917, the United States becomes involved in World War I, and the need for steel is at an all-time high. So U.S. Steel, they send a surveying crew to Harlan County, Kentucky. That's the county you're in right now is Harlan. Now, when you get a mine that's as big as Portal 31 is, and I'm telling you, this place is impressive as far as the size of it. The north heading of Portal 31 goes 13 miles through the mountain. Now, if you were to add up all the tunnels, as far as miles, you are approaching 800 miles worth. That's how big this place is. If you arrived in Lynch prior to 1921, you are going to be put into a bunkhouse at least for a few months because all company housing in Lynch is not completed till the end of 1921, beginning of 1922. If you are put into a bunkhouse, U.S. Steel guarantees you and everybody in your family three meals a day and that's coming from the 25 company kitchens that they had running. Portal 31 closes in 1963. They mine it out. Now, saying that they mined this place out, that is a little bit misleading. Because if you look in front of you, behind you, there's nothing but coal everywhere. This is a room and pillar mine. Those pillars are purposely left because that's what's holding your mountain up. When you do room and pillar mining, you can only mine out up to 50% of the coal. The rest of it has to be left in pillars. From 1917 to 1963, they pulled 120 million tons out of this mine. There's every bit of that left in here, okay? Now, a lot of times what companies will do when they mine out what they're gonna mine, they'll go to the farthest point in the mine. And working backwards, 
they'll pull these pillars out. The official name for it is retreat mining. Okay, it's extremely dangerous because when you pull those pillars, you purposely let the top come down and you're sitting there watching it when it does. That's probably the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life, hands down, because you honestly think that's it. You're getting ready to die. Now, the reason U.S. Steel did not retreat mine Portal 31 is because there's two mines above us as well as one below us. So they had to leave the mountain intact. Now, around 1963, when this mine closes, there was a big transition going on within the city of Lynch. Lynch was getting ready to elect their first mayor and city council. They were getting ready to become incorporated. That was a big deal because when they become incorporated, U.S. Steel loses control of the town. It's no longer a company town after that. So U.S. Steel, they actually transfer a lot of the buildings they own as well as some of the land over to the city of Lynch. All of the miners' houses, those are sold to the Danhurst Company. That company turns right back around and sells the houses right back to the coal miners. A miner could buy his home in Lynch for between $400 and $1,000, depending on the size and the style of it. Luckily for these coal miners in Portal 31, when this mine closes, they do not lay them off. They actually transfer them to the 32 mine located on top of Black Mountain. After lunch at a general store in the mountains, we go by van on a winding road to a place known as Valley of the Winds. That's where we meet local artist Jeff Chapman Crane and his wife. They've created a gallery inside an old house on their property. I'm Jeff Chapman Crane. This is my wife, Charmin. We live next door. We operate the, the gallery here. I just want to say a few things about the house where the gallery is. It's around 150 years old. And it was not located here when it was originally built. It was located in the far back corner of that field. And it was rolled up here on logs. We've been here for 35 years. We named it Valley of the Winds because this community is called Eola, which is a Cherokee word for Valley of the Winds or Valley of the Spirits. I'm a full-time painter. I grew up in the mountain regions. I'm from East Tennessee, but I lived here now for over 40 years. The Appalachian region has been very misrepresented and misunderstood. There are a lot of very negative stereotypes about the people and the place. So the work that I do basically is about telling the story of Appalachia from the perspective of someone who grew up here, who loves the culture, the people, and who understands it at a much deeper level. I used to create images of endangered animals and habitats with found materials, assemblages. Then I started writing poetry in what I call First Critter, so that they talk to you about who they are. And now I work with heirloom pieces in the family and passing the stories on from previous generations on to the next generation. There's one room where all of the artwork is done by young people. Quite a few of them are drawings that I did when I was three, four, five, up to about age 10. There's a few pieces that our son did when he was young, several pieces that Charmin did as a young person. And so we just kind of ded dedicated that room to that work. Consequently, that artwork is hung at children's eye level. That's a good idea. And we'll 
I move from this rim in that way and kind of keep the flow going around this rim. I also do my own framing. This space serves as both a gallery and a, and a work area. Are these people from the community around here? Mostly, yeah. So, from the region. Outside the house gallery, we sit down for a conversation with Kate Hanslick, co-director of Higher Ground, a valued local theater project. Higher Ground was started back in the early 2000s when Robert Guype took a group of Appalachian Studies students and basically taught them a process of how to write and get a grant. So they applied for a John D. Rockefeller grant and to their surprise, got it. And in that grant, they did a lot of story gathering and collecting with members of the community and did a photography project and also a couple of murals. With the photography project and the oral histories, they realized that there was a massive opioid addiction in the county that was affecting absolutely everyone, but no one was talking about it publicly. Everyone was just sort of suffering in silence and, and there was no community process for grieving who was lost or to really talk about the issues that were happening. Robert Geip found a playwright to work with the students. Joe Carson is from East Tennessee and does this work with communities all over in the South. She wrote a play called Higher Ground that compared the opioid addiction to a flood that Harlan County had in 1977. It was basically how with both the flood and the opioids, everyone, no matter who they were, were all searching for higher ground. Who participates in these productions? How does it work? So through the mural projects that we were also doing at that time, Robert just really met a lot of people uh, in the community and then through those art projects would say like, hey, we're doing a show, we'll have auditions, but everybody is in who comes to auditions will be in the play in some sort of form. And so that first show, they had about 80 cast members who participated. And so it was a pretty massive like pageant almost of community talent, it was great. And so we've just been going ever since. What are some of the other themes that you've explored in mm -hmm. this theater? We've explored coal mining, strip mining, and the environmental challenges about that. We've talked about needle exchanges and the need for needle exchange programs. And we've talked about staying or leaving, which is a huge topic, especially with youth here. And this most recent one, we talked about basically the community's response to COVID. What are your goals? What will Higher Ground become? In 2024, we are part of a cohort called One Nation, One Project of about eight to 10 other places in the US who are all doing art on the same day, linking arts organizations and public health and local municipalities to really celebrate home and what it means to be home. We circle back to Jessica Bennett Kincaid. She was born in Kentucky, but grew up nomadically, never imagining that she would come home to live. My family has really deep ties to Kentucky and in particular this region of Kentucky. I started coming out here within the last three months pretty regularly to help with the flood relief at Apple Shop. So I spent many hours driving 
back and forth down the mountain parkway very early in the morning and very late at night. And it's just this very meditative time of day anyway. And the scenery transports you. And I kept driving past the exit to Beattyville, Kentucky, which is where my grandfather and my great grandparents were all from. And I've never been there. And I started realizing that I have this really deep connection to this part of the state that I've never actually been directly connected to. And as part of this conference, we went and toured an old coal mine in Lynch, Kentucky, which I also have never been to. But there's a small building at the mouth of this coal mine that I just happened to very quickly walk into and was kind of smacked in the face with this sense memory. There's certain things about like the tonal quality of the light inside of a wood frame building and the smell of it. It smelled like machine oil and coal dust. And I was immediately transported back to when I was maybe seven years old, my grandfather's brother ran a coal yard in Louisville, Kentucky. And he would take me out there to visit with his brothers, plural. They would all kind of gather out there. They would just sit on the porch and listen to the radio and just hang out and not do anything. I'm having a probably a very different journey than a lot of people who are on this conference who are coming out to really see the cultural heritage of the space, the art forms and the content of what people are working with. And I'm really responding to the geography and the landscape and just imagining a different generation of my family and how they lived here. A true and deep <laughs> sense of place. Indeed, yeah. I'm Kathy Bird. This is the Fresh Art International Podcast. This episode is one in our three-part series around IKT in Kentucky. We take you on a road trip across the state to share just a few of the many stories to be found in Appalachia, a region we're beginning to understand holds a world of art and culture. If you like what you're hearing, please take a few minutes to rate and subscribe to our podcast. Thank you to the Association of International Curators of Contemporary Art and the Great Meadow Foundation for funding our participation in the IKT Kentucky Congress. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation, Locust Projects, and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, and listeners like you make Fresh Art International possible. When you visit our site, you'll find other episodes about art and culture from around the world. While you're there, sign up for our news and give a donation to support these stories. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.